I think without a doubt, we you have to stop overeating and overconsuming. That is absolutely clear in the research. We need to stop overeating, which means, in my mind, a couple things. One, control your hunger and your cravings in the way that makes sense. We've talked about that for you. The other thing is, is that remember, you can overeat so-called healthy foods, and that's not going to be help, helpful for you either. You want to regulate your hunger. You want to decrease your calories. You want to strive for very nutrient-dense foods. And finally, my tip would be do everything you can related to stress, mindfulness. You've heard some of that. And also the quality of the foods, decreasing the palatability so you're not overeating. And when you do that, you will achieve a calorie deficit and hormonal balance, which are the two things required to live a long, functional, healthy life. Hello, hello. Welcome back, Neurohacker community, to episode number 71 of our podcast. We brought on three experts who have devoted their lives to understanding nutrition. This episode was designed to create a comprehensive guide to nutrition for longevity. There is so much varied advice on nutrition out there, and this conversation brings to light the disagreements amongst experts, as well as the fundamentals of nutrition that we all can agree on. For details on this episode, go to neurohacker.com slash podcast. You'll get a summary of our show, the full transcript, and can join in the conversation in the comments. Without further ado, let's jump into the show. Here's Dr. Greg Kelly, Dr. Jay Tetta, Nora Gudwadas, and Doug Evans. This is Dr. Greg Kelly. I'm the uh, lead formulator and scientist at Neurohacker Collective, and for today's Collective Insight podcast, we're lucky to have three experts in different different areas of health, all with a strong background in nutrition. So first, there's Doug Evans, who's a pioneer in the natural food industry and just released a book, which I actually read this past weekend, called The Sprout Book. We have Nora Gedgaudis who um, I know her and I share a lot in terms of our background with nutrition. She's been in practice helping people for more than 20 years, is a best-selling author, and is a, a, an expert both in neurofeedback and nutrition. And then we have Jade Tata, who, like myself, is a naturopathic doctor and has a, has, um, a background, strong background in exercise, sports nutrition, but also himself is a, a, a well-known author, lecturer, and has developed many different programs that have nutrition and exercise as core components. So with that background, our goal today during the next um, hour or so is to really focus on nutrition and longevity and give especially insight into areas where we all think um, you as our audience can um, really have a lot of confidence if you invest in that area that there'll be a lot of return for your investment. So um, we know there's lots of areas of nutrition that there's disagreement. Our focus today is going to be on things that you can bank on. So with that, I wanted to turn it over first to Doug, just to, you know, since you're the the newest author and have a book that just came out. I wanted to um, introduce you and give you a, a quick opportunity to just introduce yourself to our audience. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. And I feel like I'm the most undereducated of this, of this group, having cheated my way through high school uh, without <laughs> higher education. Um, but I do know how to read and I am very persistent uh, in, in my quest for, for knowledge. But I grew up in the streets of New York City, and I was a graffiti writer, and then I became a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne, 
<laughs> and then a graphic designer and shifted my way into computer graphics. And at the first time, probably at 33, everything was looking really good. And then everything looked really bad when my aunt got diabetes and they chopped off her feet below her ankles. And then my uncle got heart disease and he died. Then my other uncle got heart disease and he died. Then my aunt, other aunt got IBS and colitis and then she died. And then my mom got cancer and she died. And then my father got heart disease and he died. And then my brother had the first of three strokes and a heart attack and all sorts of other complications. And that was my wake up call from finally like being able to take a deep breath and go, oh, I'm making a little money. I have an apartment. I have a relationship. Everything is good to, oh, shit, I better get my affairs in order because I'm genetically cursed and I'm going to die. Right. And that was 21 years ago. Mm-hmm. And that, that kind of shifted me to literally drop everything. And then I started um, researching and seeing, was I genetically cursed? you know, or was it lifestyle? And I, I met someone who was plant-based. She was a vegan. I never heard the term vegan before. I thought it was slang for vegetarian. And in a two week period in April, 1999, I went from eating street food and fast food, um, processed food, candy, soda, like the worst, cheapest junk that you could have that, um, that's what I ate every day to going vegetarian, vegan, and then I was raw vegan for 17 years, and now I've become less dogmatic and I eat some cooked vegetables. Great. So that that's kind of my, my personal journey. And is the podcast over now? <laughs> <laughs> um, and along the way, you know, fast forward to today, two years ago I moved to the desert. And not only am I living in the desert, I'm living in the Mojave Desert, where it's really hot, very few things grow here, and we're off the water grid. And not only is this a food desert, this, this is the desert, it's a food desert, because I'm an hour and 15 minutes from a Whole Foods, longer to Air One, you know, or Jimbo's, or anything really healthy. So that's what kind of reactivated my desire for sprouting. And Great. so I was like, okay, I know, I think there's a, there's a consensus amongst, uh, hopefully the, the four of us that vegetables are good for you. Do, do we agree on that? More or less. Okay. It depends. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> yeah. all right. Okay. Um, so I, I believe vegetables are good and I yeah. wanted to make sure I had access to vegetables. So I started to sprout and the sprouting became an obsession. And within a month, I was sprouting about a dozen different things and 50% of my calories were coming from food that I was growing in my 48 square foot kitchen without soil, without sunshine and for pennies a serving. And I said, this is powerful information that I feel compelled to get out to the world because I didn't have a green thumb and all of this gardening I thought took weeks or months or years and the fact that you could actually grow edible food within days was a real revelation. And I couldn't believe that the world didn't know this. And all of the books on sprouting were from hippy dippy trippies, who I actually like, the Ann Wigmores and Victoris Kovinskis and mm-hmm. Steve Meyerwitz. 
but they didn't have the edge to cross over to mainstream and they didn't address um, food poverty, food equality. And those are the things that were really important to me. And so I went and I, I wrote the book or I, I, I went to New York, I signed a contract to write the book and then I actually had to come back and I realized I didn't know anything about sprouting that how did they give me the responsibility to shepherd this information? And that caused me to set up a lab. Um, so I set up a sprouting lab, not too difficult, a hundred different Mason jars, trays, unbleached paper towels, hemp bags, socks, spray, uh, whatever I could do. And I just started to research. And then I interviewed people who knew a lot more about me, about nutrition and about sprouting and formula, you know, how you could live on this and then realize that no one was going to eat these things like I was unless we had recipes. So we formulated 40 recipes um, for the book. And that's, that's my story in a nutshell. Great. Well, we're lucky to have you. I know, um, you know, I, I, at least with Nora's you know, comment, um, I'm not an all is none. I, I tend to always um, go to quality. You know, so even an egg's not an egg, you know, a glass of milk's not always the same glass of milk, a stick of butter. So it's always quality. And I think one thing that I would certainly agree to that um, sprouting in general is a way to um, improve the quality of many of the things that would be chosen to be sprouted. So with that, I wanted to turn it over to Nora, who of the people on this, I'm most familiar with her work. And yeah. I know we have a lot in common in terms of some of our nutrition mentors. So I wanted to give you a chance to let our audience know about really your journey to get where you are today. Yeah, I've, my interest in nutritional science goes back nearly 40 years. And, uh, you know, it's just it has been a passion for the better part of that 40 years. I never would have imagined I could actually make a living doing anything with that. It was just what I did when nobody else was looking uh, for a while. But I, I did uh, engage in, in quite a lot of undergraduate, some graduate study in nutrition, which I found terribly lacking, actually. Um, and, um, you know, did a lot of uh, my own trial and error, uh, you know, developed an interest in the early kind of biohacking work of Dirk Pearson, Sandy Shaw, kind of the original biohackers. Um, and, uh, you know, just studied an extremely wide range of, of topics. It, but my interest in nutrition started out with an interest largely in, in, uh, in supplementation because it just seemed like, wow, it was, it's really cool. You take this and it can have this effect. And, you know, I, I struggled with depression. So I found that, uh, by using certain amino acids, I could get certain neurotransmitter effects that were, that were noticeable. And that was compelling to me. Uh, but I didn't really have uh, necessarily an underlying sort of structural, uh, you know, edifice upon which I was building, you know, these ideas about nutrition. There wasn't any kind of cohesive thing that was drawing, you know, connecting all these dots together back to a, uh, uh, to a basic dietary, you know, approach to things. And uh, you know, when you, when you're in the, you know, you're into the supplement world, you're into kind of the health food thing and whatever, you know, you do get led down vegetarian and vegan, um, uh, you know, roads. And I've certainly, you know, ventured down those roads and they were definitely not, you know, effective for me. Um, but I really didn't know where to put it all. I really didn't. And then, uh, I managed to spend, 
a whole summer of my life living less than 500 miles from the North Pole with a family of wild wolves. And <laughs> it's a long story, um, whole different podcast, I guess. But um, but during my time there, I found myself, you know, I, I developed a taste for, for fat that I didn't, you know, I was sort of fat phobic when I went up there. Uh, I believed in the low-fat paradigm. I thought that that was important for health. Uh, there were kind of mainstream government guidelines, and I was trying to do, you know, the, you know, things based on that. And when I got up there, I ran into all sorts of things that conflicted with that and left a lot of niggling questions in the back of my mind. There was an Inuit community I spent several days in uh, on my way up to Ellesmere Island, and and uh, they were 80% subsistence lifestyle. Nothing grew in their environment. Uh, and uh, the community was actually uh, seemed, you know, reasonably healthy and fit. They they had very little access at that time. I know that that's changed now, but very little access to processed foods and things. Uh, once every couple of weeks, uh, you know, twin otter plane would land with some limp vegetables that, you know, the, the, the grocery store was about the size of the space that I'm sitting in, a little six by nine you know, office space. Uh, it was it was tiny. You know, it was the post office. It was a few other things too, and people liked you know processed foods, and maybe they liked getting their hands on vegetables now and again. But it wasn't practical. It was expensive. You know, and so the people there largely hunted for and fished for what they needed, and. The kids were healthy. The adults were healthy. I didn't see obesity, and it just didn't add up in my mind. I got to Ellesmere, and you know, all worry that I wasn't going to be able to juice or eat my big salads or whatever. And I got up there, and I suddenly just wanted to eat fat. And uh, and I spent the better part of the summer eating a very high fat diet. Um, and by the end of the summer, I'd lost twenty five pounds, and uh, you know, I was doing pretty well. And that just didn't add up. And then once I got back, I stumbled across the work of Weston Price. And it was a little bit like getting struck between the eyes with a sack of wet cement. It was, uh, it was uh, a real revelation to me. But it also didn't go back far enough. I started asking myself the question, what were the selective pressures that shaped us as a species, that shaped uh, our physiological makeup and our most basic nutrition requirements? And so I dug way back. I went very prehistoric in my in my inquiry about that, and I found some very interesting things. And um, uh, and even you know uh, you know Weston Price's work was something that uh, that had some very telling things in it. Um, you know, of course, you know he covered over a hundred thousand you know, miles over 10 years across the planet and, and went into, you know, had contact with, with a, an enormous number of traditional and so-called primitive societies that were available back then in the 1920s and 1930s. We just developed air travel, but there were still all these cultures. And he analyzed the diets of all these people and he analyzed the health of all these people and the skeletal structure and the dent, you know, dentition and all of that. And what he found was that people that consumed these healthy uh, you know, were consuming the diets of their ancestors, uh, maintained extraordinary robustness, uh, health, freedom from disease, mental, uh, you know, strong mental constitution, uh, had, you know, seemed to have strength of character and all kinds of the things that, that we would like to think of as a, that would be a consequence of optimized health. And, uh, what many people who, 
appreciated his point of view, uh, took away from that was, uh, well, just eat real food and it's all good. But that isn't necessarily the way I see it. And it really wasn't even the way Weston Price saw it. He asked him, ended up asking himself a very important question. When he looked at the vast range of dietary approaches uh, that he had encountered among healthy populations, he found that there were at least two things they all had in common. One of which, um, you know, sorry to say with some of the present company, was that they every single one of them consumed as many animal source foods as were available to them. And, and you know, in, in other words, he sought, he looked everywhere he could to try to find a vegan culture. He couldn't. Um, and, uh, but what he did find was that, you know, the greater variety of animal source foods available, you know, generally the healthier, the population, but also in every case, the most important food, the most venerated food, the most sought after food and the food that seemed to be associated with the healthiest, um, healthiest pregnancies and healthiest babies were the foods that were richest in fat and fat soluble nutrients, uh, nearly always of animal origin. And so, I, I took that to represent, and I, and I found a lot of consistency in terms of our evolutionary history in those principles, and I took that to represent a a powerful uh, sort of foundational, uh, basically substrate from which uh, optimized human health uh, can most often or can be best built, and so. Yeah, I was the first person within the ancestral health movement, some called the paleo movement. Uh, and even at the very outset, the subtitle of my book was Beyond the Paleo Diet for Total Health and a Longer Life. I, I was the first person within the context of that movement that embraced a more uh, fat-based ketogenic approach uh, to nutrition. But I also do embrace a wide variety of fibrous vegetables and greens. I, I'm not a fan of the carnivore diet per se uh, for reasons that are just too much to go into at the moment. But... Um, I think fibrous vegetables and greens have more to offer us than they ever used to, um, but not everybody tolerates them well. And so, you know, I, I recommend of as great a variety as people can incorporate to the extent that they, um, to the, that they tolerate them well. And if they don't, well, that's okay too. But, um, you know, I, I'm, I tend to think that that in the modern world that we live in, the, there are numerous phytochemicals that can help us counter some of the uniquely challenging toxic elements of our modern day environment that our prehistoric ancestors really never had to put up with. So I see that as a potential advantage. Great. Well, I'm going to actually take that um, Go for it. That and pivot to Dr. Jade, uh, because when I've listened to your podcast and your message, one of the core, core things that I hear repeated is the idea you need to find what works for you and that that can be different for different people. So I'm going to leapfrog off what Nora said and just ask if you could give a little bit of your journey and then what brought you to that message. Mm, yeah, well, first of all, it's uh, incredibly uh, cool to be here with all of you. So Doug and Nora, so nice. Yeah, to, uh, yeah you too. So nice to hang out with you. And Greg, thanks for doing this. Um, yeah, so I mean, I guess I, I guess I would say I'm maybe the agnostic of the group. You know, I am. I completely agree with Doug. I completely agree with Nora. Well, I, I completely agree with sort of both of these uh, perspectives. And 
Um, I won't go too deep into this, but to give you my my perspective, I've traveled both paths. Um, so uh, actually both of these paths. So I was a vegan vegetarian for a little while, did not do great for me. I um, was heavy into paleo for a while, did very well for me, uh, made some tweaks to that. And um, I uh, my own health, I've kind of figured that out. Clinically, though, what I ran into is that when I was pushing the vegan vegetarian approach, I would run into very healthy vegans and vegetarians. I would also run into very sick vegans and vegetarians. And when I was pushing the primal, you know, paleo type approach, I was running into very healthy primal and paleo people. And I was running into very sick primal and paleo people. And so what ended up happening for me and my journey is I started to go – you know, maybe the assumption that we make that nutrition is everything and that it solves all of our problem, perhaps maybe that's slightly wrong. And what are the other things that we need to sort of look at if we're going to be talking about uh, optimized nutrition and, and longevity in general? And that sort of got me, even though I had a background, we all know, all, all four of us know how this is. I mean, for those of you listening, we all have various education, but in the end, each of us have done deep dives and sort of continued our education to try to round ourselves out. What One of the things I did is go deep into endocrinology and metabolism. And one of the things that I feel like um, I began to see, and by the way, uh, this is incredibly complex, so in no way do I have this anywhere near figured out, <laughs> but one of the things that I began to see is that there was this unique uh, sort of thing that happened when you took certain individuals, gave them certain foods, and seeing whether they thrived or not. So to me, it was all about what I call the four Ps. It is really about that person's unique physiology. For example, one person eats a piece of bread and their insulin goes sky high and they run into inflammatory issues and they're hungry and they're craving and their blood sugars are all over the place. Another person eats that same piece of bread and they find stable energy and they, they seem to be focused and they seem to do really well. So their physiologies slightly different. Why is that? And then, of course, there's the psychology of things, right? Like one person gets stressed out and they their hunger goes completely away. And the other person gets chronically stressed out and they're craving cheesecake and popcorn and pizza and everything in sight. So there's the physiology. There's the unique psychology. There's the unique personal preferences, right? Some people like fat. Some people like vegetables. Some people like crunchy. Some people like creamy. Some people like sweet. Some people like bitter. And then finally, there's the practical. Some people live in food deserts where they can't get to the food. Some people live where there aren't animals available. Some people live where there's plenty of animals available. And so for me, when I began to sort of look at this, and I, I started to put my own bias and agenda related to nutrition aside and just tried to go, how can I figure out what works best for this individual? What do I do? And so for me, I really try to work with those four Ps. And so for me, sometimes my patients get higher fat, lower carb diets. Other times they get very vegan-based, vegetarian-based diets. Sometimes they get things in between. And I won't ramble on here, but of course there's ways I believe that we can essentially assess that. And I'll just go through them really quickly. Then I'd love to just see what Doug and Nora have to add and we can have a, a, a discussion about any direction you want to go, Greg. Here's the way I look at this, and it's going to kind of, if for this panel, I think it'll be great discussion, and I imagine no one's going to agree with me, but just try <laughs> it on for size. Here's the, way, here's the way I see this. I see it as, um, let, 
if as long as you're what I call uh, SHMEC, it's an acronym, it's a funny word, but it's sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and cravings. This acronym that is basically a window into our metabolism. If my SHMEC is in check, if my patient's sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and cravings, exercise performance, exercise recovery, menses, libido, uh, signs and symptoms, if all of those things are balanced, and they're not out of check, and they're not chasing hunger all over the place, and their energy is stable, and they feel vital. If that's true, and they're optimizing body composition, right? So they are lean, and uh, they are not too lean, but not too fat, right? They have an optimal body composition, body fat percent. So now we've got this sort of schmeck hormonal sort of uh, sensation in check, and we've got optimal body composition. And then when I look at my patients and I take their blood sugar and I take their blood pressures and I look at all their labs and all that stuff is optimized, and we have those three things in my mind, I don't care if that person's eating cotton candy and Snickers bars and Coca-Cola, then I say, good for you, your schmeck is in check, your optimized body composition, all your blood labs and blood vitals are in check. Now, I think we'd all agree no one on planet Earth is going to achieve that with that type of diet. But to me, I just go, yeah, I'm more of a paleo sort of lower carb type of dude. But one third of my patients that I see do horribly on that. And so to me, I'm all about trying to find what works for the individual. And so that's sort of my unique um, maybe contribution to this discussion. Great. And um, just for, the, I guess, um, fill in the last piece of the puzzle, I went to naturopathic school in the 90s. And when I graduated, shortly after that, I started working with Dr. Diadamo, the author of Eat Right for Your Type. And um, one of the um, things at the time is that Peter's A diet was very much in the vegetarian camp. The O diet we would think of as much more in what we now would think of as the paleo camp. B, um, dairy products were great for, not so good for the other ones. And his work evolved out of his dad's, James Diadamo, who um, in the 70s, late 70s, wrote One Man's Food. Um, the idea being what we've already touched on, that um, there can be often different paths for different people to get to health. And that the core thing I um, really personally want, and that I've always tried to um, imbue both into my students and my patients, is that the, the response is the goal. Don't get fixated on the journey or the, the dogma of the diet, but let's look at how you're responding and be open to the fact that what worked today may not keep working for you six months from now, six years from now. And that goes back to um, one of my first nutrition instructors. And Nora, I know you're really familiar with Ron Smid since mm -hmm. you wrote the foreword to his book. But one yeah. of the key takeaways that I remember from Ron's class in 1993 was the idea that there can often be a big difference between a diet that takes someone from unhealthy to healthy and one that might keep them at healthy once they got there. And so that idea that we need to be somewhat flexible has always guided my coaching with people. So um, I wanted to then, you know, we'll kind of work backwards around this time and just get your thoughts on, on that idea. I know you have um, yourself experienced quite a bit of flexibility in, in how you've approached things, Jade. Mm -hmm. I, I think um, if I recall correctly, at one point you typically did a much more keto diet in the winter and have started to move away from that. But even in that sense, you were seasonally altering what you did. 
And yeah. so, um, again, just wanted to get your thoughts on that idea that, that we sometimes need to be flexible, but always need to focus on the response. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think one of the things that we could say about we the reason us four are even sitting here talking right now is because we humans were incredibly um, adaptable and were able to exploit uh, many, many different foodstuffs and many, many different types of environments. And so I think because of that, um, not only were we able to exploit many different types of environments, but we also were able to endure or had to endure many different types of food availability. Uh, you know, so certain foods would be available during certain times and other times they would not be. And this to me also speaks to a little bit about how our metabolism works. And I think most people think metabolism is predictable. It's linear. It falls in line with our wants and needs and our desires for body composition. And it's none of those things. It's adaptive. It's reactive. It's unpredictable. It's changeable. And so from my perspective, I think one of the things we may want to start looking at is um, working with that changeability. This is one of the reasons why we, we all know that, you know, the stats are basically 95% failure rates for traditional diets, and two-thirds of those people end up fatter. Just look at the Biggest Loser study, which was a popular one many of the listeners will be familiar with, and you also start to see that maybe one of the things that I would love to get you know, sort of the panel's thought on is this idea of, yes, changing things up. Uh, quantity-wise and perhaps quality-wise to keep our metabolism flexible and efficient. In my mind, we don't want a fast metabolism. We want a flexible metabolism, a healthy, resilient metabolism. And so from my perspective, um, I would love to get everyone's sort of input on that. And the final, just one word, just so to launch uh, Nora and Doug into sort of their critiques of this or their agreements with this, one of the things that I'll point out is the, the Matador study for those who um, – aren't familiar with this. It's just a, a recent study that basically came out to say, what is the number one problem that we have? It's not necessarily losing weight, but it's keeping the weight off. And one of the things that they did is gave an intermittent calorie approach where they essentially said one group will do continuous calorie reduction and uh, the other group will do an intermittent approach, two weeks in calorie reduction, two weeks sort of normal calorie levels. And what they found is a pretty big difference despite keeping this equalized over 30 weeks in the group that was taking diet breaks versus the ones that weren't. Now, this is a quantity argument, and I think the quality argument could potentially go into that as well. But I'm interested in that and especially interested in the experts' sort of take on this as well. Well, um, Nora, well, since we're working backwards around, I'll let you jump in. Boy, uh, yeah. So I do agree that we don't want a fast metabolism necessarily. Um, you know, it's like saying you want to have an extra hot burning engine, right? You know, that it, engines that, that, you know, race cars uh, burn with really hot, hot engines using rocket, you know, basically rocket fuel. And they're not necessarily long-lived engines. What we want is is a healthy metabolism that is robust. I don't know that I'm a fan of the term metabolic flexibility. Um, you know, I know that we're one of, you know, primarily one of two things. We're either primarily a fat burner, primarily a sugar burner. 99% of our culture spends its time relying on glucose as a primary source of fuel, which is a highly volatile, not very easy to rely upon source of fuel that needs to be replenished quite often. And I see that as inherently inefficient, uh, but it does make a lot of uh, transnational corporate interests very wealthy. Um, and it also keeps us more or less perpetually hungry, which is helpful for them too. And um, and it, it leaves people with, uh, 
you know, with the constant need to be preoccupied with, you know, where their next handful of kindling is going to come from to keep the metabolic fires burning, which is why I I make a uh, a very strong case for and a very well referenced case for in my most recent book, Primal Primal Fat Burner, which is sounds like a weight loss book. It's not, but uh, be everybody's favorite side effect, I guess, is the idea that number one, it was fat that ultimately made us human in the first place, but but secondarily that that a fat-based metabolism is actually meant to be the natural metabolic state of our species. But it takes time to move into a state of what I call effective ketogenic adaptation. It's not something that happens quickly. It's not something you pop out of and pop back into. It's something that, you know, you maintain. And, and there are very, very strong, I guess maybe more to the point of this podcast, there are very, very strong uh, associations and I, I believe, you know, um, between that type of approach and uh, and things that are more likely to prolong your lifespan. One of the things that I looked at and one of the reasons that the subtitle of my book reads Beyond the Paleo Diet for Total Health in a Longer Life is that, and it may answer a little bit of, 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 of Doug's idea that, you know, yeah, there is many versions of paleo out there as there are people claiming to practice it. There's many versions of, you know, vegetarian, vegan, and keto out there as there are people claiming to practice it. Um, I actually do come from the standpoint where I believe that there is a foundational uh, dietary approach that is designed to be universal for our species. Look, what defines us, you know, as, as a species is not our differences. It's those things that we share in common, right? We all may have, you know, these unique fingerprints, but we all have fingers. And so when we talk about the everybody's different mantra, I think what we're looking at are the nuances that get laid layered on top of that. Uh, some people may have, may have, may, you know, may have certain, uh, I don't know, maybe somebody has an autoimmune condition, somebody else has, you know, extreme metabolic dysregulation that makes them not tolerate you know, uh, you know, certain, uh, you know, carbohydrate diets. Well, some people tolerate that better, but does that mean it's optimally healthy for them? I think that there's reason to demonstrate that that's not true. Um, there are people that can do okay, uh, for a period of time on, on, uh, higher, you know, carbohydrate, you know, utilizable carbohydrate diets, for instance. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's optimizing their health long term. And out of the three major macronutrients, proteins, fats, and carbohydrates, the only one for which there has never been a scientifically established human dietary requirement is carbohydrate. We can manufacture all the glucose we need from a combination of protein and fat. There is no such thing as an essential carbohydrate, which includes, you know, vegetables, I'm sorry to say. It's not essential, but I do think that it can be beneficial. And that's, you know, therein lies the difference. Um, so I, I'm about starting at bedrock with the things that are essential to us, as demonstrably essential to us in terms of nutrients uh, as a species, and, and doing what is possible to cultivate a more fat-based metabolism, which is easier to maintain, uh, uh, you know, which, which is, in other words, it's, it's more stable, it's more reliable, even in the absence of regular meals. And it also enhances things like, I mean, it, you get a lot of the same effects from a well-formulated, uh, by the way, protein moderate, you know, I, I moderate my protein intake, a ketogenic approach, um, 
has a lot of things in common with what people embrace as sort of intermittent fasting and things of that nature. I think it also speaks to why sometimes vegan diets can be very useful because they're accomplishing the same thing insofar as, well, depending on the vegan diet, but, um, you know, uh, particularly minimizing the activation of mTOR, right? Mammalian or mechanistic uh, uh, um, target of rapamycin. Target of rapamycin, yes. So um, that I believe that that's important is is doing what we can to kind of keep that at the end of a short leash. What does that do? It enhances autophagy, you know, which is this process by which your, our cells are able to keep themselves cleaned out. It helps to uh, stimulate uh, regeneration and repair mechanisms, which is automatically anti-aging in its effects, and activates sirtuin genes. Intermittent fasting can do the same thing, but it does that intermittently, right? And what I'm what I'm advocating is a way of eating that where one can accomplish this, and you can you can layer a certain amount of intermittent fasting on top of that if you want to enhance the effect of it by keeping your eating to a certain window during the course of the day. Um, but in the end, you're accomplishing the same thing without any feelings of deprivation or hunger. And to me, that is the more sustainable approach. Um, and I do think food quality is critical. Nutrient density is absolutely critical in this equation. And by the way, so is healthy digestion. And so if the person is not tolerating a, a diet that has animal source foods, you have to ask yourself why, because there is no basis for the idea within the realm of human evolution or our physiological makeup. There's there's really no basis for the uh, the idea that well some people just you know shouldn't you know some people should eat you know uh, a high carb diet some people should, should eat a low carb diet kind of a thing. Um, it's really clear when you look at the way the human body is designed and the way we evolved. To me, that's the only rational starting place we have, and then. Upon that, then we layer, you know, I cross-pollinate these concepts, uh, these ancestral concepts, for instance, with longevity research in order to better optimize those principles. And then I also try to take into account the uniquely toxic and incomprehensibly challenging world that we live in today, in, you know, industrialized world that our prehistoric ancestors would have never have been able to wrap themselves around. And that's where I think some... Uh, phytochemicals can come into play and have hormetic effects that may, you know, add a, a greater robustness to the equation and, and also a greater dietary diversity, which can lead to microbial diversity in the gut, which Im then in turn improves oral tolerance and robustness of the immune system. So anyway, uh, that's where I go with that. <laughs> well, um, Doug, I'm going to turn it over to you in a second. You've been really patient, which I yeah, you have thank you for. <laughs> yeah, but one thing I did want to comment on, and this goes back to the work of Weston Price, at least as I understand it, but in um, in some of the cultures that he investigated, so one would have been a, a valley in Switzerland that really yeah, relied on, on dairy. And um, they prized most specifically the dairy, the butter that came late summer after mm -hmm. cows had been able to graze on the best quality grass that was the most green and you know nutrient dense for a whole season. So in a sense, like my interpretation is they were getting the a lot of the plant-based things just with an intermediate in between. That, you know, poor quality dairy would not have worked for them in the same way that, you know, essentially having 
the cows be the interface between the plant-based world and theirs. So I, you know, I um, personally have never done as well on a high-fat diet as some other people that I know. Um, and I, I know I, I, when I lived yeah. in Hawaii, yeah. doing a much more plant-based diet worked a lot better than, for me than when I was in cold winters in New England. So I, I also tend to personally believe like we need to look at the overall context that that person is in. Well, you know, when I talk about higher fat, I mean high percentage fat in terms of fat dominating the caloric landscape, you know, so my protein moderation is, is, um, I think an important part of the, you know, keeping mTOR at the end of a short leash equation. And then you can fill the rest of your plate with fibrous vegetables and greens for the, you know, various benefits you might get from that and the added dietary diversity. But fat and fat soluble nutrients are are an incredibly critical part of the way our immune system functions, incredibly critical part about uh, of the way our brain functions. And many of these things are can only really be gotten from animals that have synthesized them for us, that there are no, you know, uh, plant-based correlates uh, that, that work in the same way in the human body. And so, so um, yeah. I just wanted yeah. to pause because I think there's an area that we might all agree on, and I wanted to make sure if there is that we I would point yeah, that yeah, out. Yeah. And that would be that, high quality fat is imperative, right? So that no matter what path we are taking for a healthy longevity diet, the fat we eat, we want to make sure is impeccable quality. Would it be fair to say that we all agree on that? Yes. I do. All right, Doug, you're back on. I would agree it was high quality plant fat. Yeah. No, I mean, that's that's fine. We don't have to qualify what type, but the fat we do eat, whether that's plant-based or animal-based, it's it's... To me, that's the most important thing in a quality perspective. Like, I, I care more about that someone would eat the best butter than a mediocre blueberry. Like, mm-hmm. personally, that's just my how I tier things. Because I think, um, like Nora pointed out, fats are something that is essential. If we go back to the work of Weston Price and all the traditional cultures that he investigated, they prized the quality of the fat. So, um, you know, however we, whatever path to that quality our individual diet may take can vary. And so with that, Doug, you know, yours is much more plant-based. So I'm going to turn it back over. You've been patient. You've listened to a lot and I want to get your thoughts. Yeah. I mean, my thoughts are much more provincial in how I look at the world and also from experiential for me you know, having lived a lifestyle like this for 21 years, I'm 53 years old, I'm going on 54 and I'm at the same weight I was when I got out of the army and I'm in the same physical condition. I'm nowhere ripped like Jade, you know, he's a, like, he's a specimen, you know, that, that I haven't experienced, but in my own way, I can touch my toes. I could do my 10 pull-ups. I could do my 25 push-ups, and I can run five or 10 K a day every day and I sleep well, um, for at least six hours a night, I try to sleep for eight hours, but once I'm up, there's no, there's no going back. Um, part of my kind of mission and calling having, you know, I omitted parts of my journey on the business side where I created products, um, and services that were plant-based but that were perceived to be expensive and elitist and targeted towards the 1%. And 
you know, whether it was cold pressed juice or premium raw food, but at 10 to $15 per serving, it was considered um, exclusive. And so when I, I like experienced my personal composting and now I'm rising from the compost, you know, through sprouting, which actually doesn't require compost, but interesting enough, I really looked at some of the biggest global issues that we have, you know, from, you know, climate to starvation, to disease, to, um, the chronic illnesses that are plaguing us, the diabetes, obesity, cancer, heart disease. And I looked at how I could make a contribution and like what, what could be equal for all. And so if you were to ask me, would it be better to have premium grass fed, um, beef or wild elk shot with an arrow, um, versus, you know, uh, factory farmed, you know, no, no question from a nutrition perspective, I would agree with the former, um, than the latter. But when I look at that, I, I don't, and I'm not a geologist or historian. I don't know how the world is, but I look at it that I don't think that there's enough land mass to provide that same super high quality plant fat or protein for everybody. Um, I, and I don't know if you agree or, or not. No, so <laughs> you don't agree. Okay. Well, that's okay. Yeah. So I, th that's my, my belief. I think that when the, and, and even if there is the physical land mass to provide all that grazing, et cetera, the, the profit structure of how the, um, food industries and, you know, um, and especially with, um, how they're run, you know, where every, um, fraction of a penny and basis point matters towards profitability, et cetera. Um, there will always be differentiation from super premium. I remember, you know, having a Kobe steak for a hundred dollars, you know, versus a subsidized 99 cent, um, you know, hamburger, a fast food hamburger. So, what, what I looked at was saying, how can um, the world, how can people have access to high quality food that um, is disease free, that um, high in phytochemicals, high in micronutrients, high in ithocyanates, um, that, that can satisfy hunger and satisfy good movements. And so I've been my own um, guinea pig on this. And then, you know, watching the level that sprouts have been around, you know, I don't know how you, how you look at this, but my framework is there would be no life on this planet if seeds didn't germinate and sprout and grow into vegetables and fruit trees and, and feed. And when we talked about animals kind of, um, being the intermediary of converting, like someone says, well, where, you know, where does a cow get its protein from? It's getting it from grass. It's getting, you know, where's the dairy get coming from? It's all coming from, from the plants themselves. So the biggest, the biggest mammals, um, are converting, um, these plants. So 
that's about the extent of my scientific purview on it. But what I could say is that sprouts and my personal diet, 50% sprouts, some fruit, because I really like fruit and I process fruit well, and then um, vegetables of all sorts. And I like fungi. I love mushrooms. And I, I think that um, the, the economic advantage of sprouting is such that was incomprehensible to me um, before, where if you were to go into a health food store and buy a pack of sprouts, it's $5. If you were to grow your own from the seed, and I'm talking about premium organic sprouting seeds tested for pathogens with high germination rate, it's 20 cents, 30 cents worth of seeds. And therefore, no special equipment required, no soil, no sunshine, um, provincial things to be able to feed people. And we talk about local. What is more local than growing your own food on your own countertop? And if someone, because I do you know, help, I, I don't use the word coach, guide, advice, et cetera, but I help people who want to, to sprout. If someone wants to get um, protein and you look at some of the sprouts that have high protein content or high fat content, the legumes or hemp seeds or lentils or peas, the, the fascinating thing that, uh, that I learned in doing the research were that if you were to take lentils and on the second or third day of the lentils and sprout them, you double the antioxidant um, levels and you triple or quadruple the level of vitamin C and you're increasing the fiber by 50% to 100%. So these dormant little um, seeds or legumes with a little attention become these nutritional powerhouses if you value those, those things there. And then one cup of lentils can have over seven grams of protein in them. So that's surprising that people are saying, and they also... Um, and I'm not prepared on the fat discussion, um, but I feel that there's so much that can be derived from seeds germinating and sprouting. And rather than recommending, I do own the domain Sproutarian, but I'm not promoting a Sproutarian diet. What I'm kind of um, an analyzing is that sprouts can be an incredibly useful tool to give people, um, to complement their diet that are low cost, easy and accessible and that they can fit in where you talked about quality. I think that food grown on your own, um, is, can potentially be very high quality. Okay. I think that I, I am pretty sure we would all agree that, you know, growing our food to the extent that we can is, you know, thumbs up. Um, yeah. you know, and, um, I know my background for sure, local is something that I prize. Um, mm -hmm. with that, I wanted to make sure that we, you know, diverted back into the idea of, you know, trying to help clarify some areas, um, especially as it, um, nutrition interacts with longevity and find out if we could, um, you know, really maybe guide our users. And one of the 
I guess I'll just start with a story. But when I was um, graduated college in 1984, going into the Navy, it occurred to me that I had no idea what to eat. My entire life up to that point, someone had always put food in front of me, and I just ate as much of it as at that meal I wanted. And at the time, one of my buddies I was lifting with said, hey, read this book, which happened to be, I believe it was called Eat to Win by Elson Haas, oh, which God. we would we would think of today as much <laughs> more of, you are. <laughs> yeah, of the, you know, the um, low-fat, high-complex carb. But really, my takeaway, and I, I've seen this with patients over the years, is the big takeaway of how I applied that was I just looked at the amount of fat and everything I picked up. If it was low, I put it in the shopping cart. If it was high, I didn't. And, you know, so that my, my heuristic was fairly simple. It was what I would think of as like a low fat, no fat guidepost to making my food choices. And obviously I have a very different one now. I know each of us on the phone has, um, different ones we've evolved and different from each other. But what I was hoping is we maybe could each share one or two rules of thumb that we're comfortable giving most people in terms of something that if they apply that, that simple rule doesn't have to be um, super in depth, where we feel good that that would um, lead them down the path of healthy longevity as it interacts with, with nutrition. So with that, I'm going to start and give it to you, Jade, since you've been you know, on the sidelines here for a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the, the major thing that we need to look at is we need to look at, and we have to, in my mind, be pretty evidence-based here and essentially say, what is the number one killer? Well, obesity, diabetes, these things are leading to heart disease, cancer. So the first thing is, what do we do about obesity? It's you know, two-thirds of the population are essentially overweight. This is going to crush you, make you uh, susceptible to chronic disease, mess with your function. So here's my sort of four rules based on the evidence for everyone listening. First of all, do whatever you can to not overeat and overconsume, which essentially means you need to control hunger and cravings. How do you do that? Well, actually, both Doug and Nora have some solutions for each of you, depending on your particular direction you want to go. Protein, fiber, and water are the best ways to do this. If you're in the Nora camp, it's protein. This is, by the way, this is without well, a doubt. Fat. This, this, I see fat as actually the, you know, you know. Yeah. And, and what I'll say is respectfully, go and look at the research on this. You'll find protein is the number one macronutrient. I understand what you're saying. Carb is next. Fat is last. Now, fiber, mm -hmm. if you can't do protein, you can do fiber like Doug. So that's rule number one. Don't overeat. Rule number two is eat, uh, you know, high nutrient dense foods, wherever they come from. Again, both in Doug's camp and Nora's camp, there are extremely beneficial foods in both sides. So depending on where you're coming from, just get nutrient dense foods. That usually means whole foods and things like that. And then the final thing I'll say kind of goes back to the no overeating thing. And that is watch your palatability. Try to avoid hedonistic, highly palatable, you know, calorie-dense foods that are rich in combinations of starch, sugar, fat, salt, and alcohol. Have enough of that stuff to satisfy you so you enjoy your diet, but keep that stuff to a minimum so you don't overeat. And that, to me, is a solution for longevity for most people that doesn't get into the biases and dogma on either side. Thanks, Jade. Um, with that, I'll let you up next, Nora. Right. So, you know, one thing that it seems to be consistent among most centenarians are, are healthfully low insulin levels. Anything we can do, you know, which is, of course, the fat storage hormone if you're talking about obesity. So you're doing what we can to minimize 
our body's requirement for insulin is is a very important part of the equation. You know, we know from the the all the longevity research that's that's been done over the last hundred years or so that um, that the two that the two things it turns out, and also through the work of Cynthia Kenyon and her discovery of mTOR and all of that, that um, or her discovery of of uh, you know the idea of caloric restriction um, and and that that insulin seemed to be the the uh, factor that that uh, minimizing the need for insulin seemed to be the the most important factor that she discovered in terms of doing uh, the most to maximize lifespan and activate longevity uh, genes. Um, but mTOR also is a really important part of that equation, and that's primarily associated with the amount of protein that we consume. By moderating the protein we consume to just what we need and not exceeding that, we keep mTOR in check. And it activates uh, you know, repair and regeneration mechanisms, It uh, and it also helps to maintain a healthy state of autophagy that you know works consistently well. So, from the standpoint of, for instance, vegan diets, well, they tend to be pretty low in protein uh, and available bioavailable protein, and so you know you're automatically kind of keeping mTOR at the end of a short leash. And then, depending on what else can you know that that is. Uh, that diet consists of, you may also, you, you may or may not, if you're eating sprouts, you're minimizing insulin too. So that's, that's fine. But, um, but those would be the, the fundamental principles. So nutrient density is, is a really, really critical part of the equation. And it's a critical part of, of maintaining a, a form of satiety that doesn't make you want to overeat. And there are a lot of people starving themselves into a state of obesity by eating food of very low nutrient density, poor quality. And as they they constantly feel like they have to keep eating because the body is still craving nutrients that it hasn't got. So it's not all hedonistic stuff. You know, it, it can, you know, blood sugar issues obviously can also lead to the overconsumption of food and all that kind of a thing and lead to these roller coaster states and metabolic dysregulation. But when you maintain a diet that is higher in nutrient density, and we're talking about the highest quality uh, proteins and, and fats, you automatically don't need to eat as much. It's just, you're just not hungry. Um, in fact, some people I have to remind, you know, they're like, well, gee, I can get by on one meal a day. It's like, you really need to meet your nutritional requirements here. We don't want to, you know, get overly enamored of the fact of, of not eating as, and, and that's the worry that I have with all of the fasting craze is that people may be working themselves into places of nutrient deficits, uh, with that. Um, and, and fat-based ketogenic approaches are sometimes guilty of doing that. People, you know, after a while, they're not getting enough, uh, uh, of what they need to in order to meet their nutritional requirements. So, you know, uh, some people call it caloric restriction with optimal nutrition. Yeah. I mean, but you know, it, it, we need to be meeting the fu foundational nutritional requirements without activating too much, uh, mTOR or insulin. So... That's, those are my key principles, I guess. Great. Well, thank you. And Doug, you want to share one or two like simple rules of thumb that you yeah. might? I think that um, for most of my life, I was an emotional eater. So food was a reward. 
food was punishment, food changed my state. And, you know, I ate, you know, very quickly and before the food registered to my brain, so I would overeat. And I think it's very important to be present with food, that I look at everything that I put in my mouth as a life or death decision, right? If you eat there, you know, you ate too much salt, you would die, right? So there's, there's things that could be poison. And so if you're present with the food, then you can analyze this and saying, am I hungry? You know, is this serving me? Where did this come from? You know, what kind of nutrients are, are in this? My personal kind of um, standard is I look for fresh, ripe, raw, you know, plant-based, um, local, organic, um, in season. Like those are the standards that I go through and it's very hard. And that's where sprouting kind of opened up a whole plane that now by eating copious amounts of sprouts, I feel abundant. Like it's, it's, there's a level of lightness in my um, energy because I'm no longer concerned about where my food is coming from. And I have yet to been able to overeat sprouts. <laughs> like I can overeat most anything. You know, I, I would remember going to Smith and Walensky Steakhouse in Brooklyn and eating a steak and then I got a side order of lamb chops and, and then I got a shrimp cocktail and then I had the ice cream and like the fat released the, the pleasure sensors in my brain. And that even if I wasn't hungry, I would still be able to eat cause I wanted to eat more. And with raw sprouts, I've yet to been able to overeat. Like I'll eat uh, a lot and then all of a sudden it'll be like, oh, I'm done. Like, like, I'm done. So I just want to point out for our audience, like, clearly they work for you, and at least they work right now really well. And, again, like, one of the uh, – um, and this, I know Nora, um, Jade, me to a lesser extent, have worked with many individuals over years. And um, sometimes the thing that works super well for one person isn't always going to be the best solution for someone else. So I just want to make sure that our audience doesn't um, – you know, essentially globalize one person's experience and assume that's going to be theirs because that sometimes is, sometimes it isn't. But uh, that yeah. said, I think sprouts are a great addition to literally almost everyone's diet, at least worth the shot and see how you respond to them. Now, I wanted to shift gears again. So um, I know one of the things over the years that I've heard both with people I work with, but it even comes up here at Norhacker Collective, would be how to start the day. So, you know, I know when dinner time, has, when I had patients I was working with, tended to be something they had a lot more comfort about how to execute that in a healthy way. Breakfast was a completely different thing. So um, curious if you have any um, gems in terms of ways you've had the people you've worked with, Jade, start um, their day in terms of high quality food. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I'm, I'll, I'll go back to individualizing this. To me, I look at it like there are many different ways to approach this. Some people can skip breakfast and do just fine. Other people skip breakfast and end up eating a boo-boo burrito and a large pizza for lunch as a result of skipping breakfast. And so from my perspective, I think what we all need to do, everyone listening, is essentially just ask yourself, when I eat versus I don't eat, what happens at the next meal? When I eat nothing but carbohydrate versus nothing but fat, what happens at the next meal? And become more of a metabolic detective in starting to understand what works for your physiology or not. Are you going to do well with oatmeal and you're gonna, that's going to get you to the fact where you end up having a nice you know, steak with salad for lunch? Or as a result of having that oatmeal, are you going to end up having a burrito or a burger? Are you going to have steak and eggs for breakfast? And as a result of that, is that going to make you eat better or worse? Or if I just skip breakfast altogether, because some people, once they start eating, they keep eating. To me, it's incredibly individualized. It, there's no way of getting around that. So each of us have to take that ownership on ourselves instead of trying to outsource it to experts, in my personal opinion. Don't ask me. You know your body better than me in my opinion. I can give you some guidelines to essentially say, here's what helps with hunger for most people and cravings for most people. And here's you know, sort of what the research says. But remember, research is a tool for averages, not individuals. And so what we need to do is take the onus on ourselves and do some of that work. So I would say that, remember that acronym, hunger, energy, and cravings, HEC, what keeps my heck in check? What, keeps, what throws it out of check? What foods do I need to eat so I eat more of the better foods later versus what foods do I eat that make me eat worse and more later? And that's how I would answer that question. Fantastic. And before I turn it back to you, Nor, I just wanted to point out a, a common area that now um, both in their own way have mentioned, and that's the um, tuning in, really paying attention to what we do in the moment, but also how we res respond later in that day. And what Jade's talking about um, is often called the second meal effect in research. And it's the idea that what we might do at breakfast is actually going to then shape what we gravitate towards eating at lunch and also how we metabolically respond to that. So, um, you know, one of the core principles in being able to individually self-identify a healthy diet over time does require this paying attention aspect. So with that, I'm going to give it back to you, Nora. Sure. Well, you know, again, as with many things, it depends. I do think that the I, I acknowledge the the existence of bioindividuality, but I debate its its foundational role in making determinations. I think that there are foundational uh, that there is such a thing as a as a foundational human diet, and bioindividuality is something that is layered on top of that as nuance. And uh, but we live in a very complex world, and some people. Um, have gone through the pains of developing a, a, a fat-based metabolism, other people more reliant on a, on a glucose-based metabolism as a primary source of fuel. And depending on that, you know, those people are going to, you know, a person that is prone to hypoglycemia is not going to do well skipping breakfast, right? They're just not going to do well. Um, and so, uh, but, you know, somebody, you know, like me, to be honest with you, and this is not at all typical, I haven't eaten a damn thing today. I've just been so busy with stuff. And I just only just sort of realized that. I'm like, what did I do to? Oh, geez, I haven't eaten anything. For me, eating is more of a choice that, you know, I'm able to kind of pick and choose the healthier alternatives 
Um, when I do sit down to eat, I do try to eat more than once a day because I want to get all of my nutrition in. But, um, you know, I can go for really long stretches of time. I've actually gone as long as 21 days. I, I, I don't recommend this for people. This was like an end of one experiment that I wanted to just sort of see what happened. But I went for 21 days doing nothing but drinking water, maybe a cup of tea uh, in the morning. Uh, so I took in fluids, but I didn't eat anything. And I had my blood sugar as low as 50 with no consequences whatsoever to my mood, health or energy equation. Um, it was very, very interesting. You know, my ketone levels I monitored and, and all of those things. Uh, and then, of course, you know, I, once I got to 21 days, I thought, OK, that. That, enough of that. <laughs> I'm, I'm hungry. I, I would like to eat something. But um, but the fact of the matter is that if you know if you're relying on a more of a fat based metabolism, it's it's easier uh, long term. But if a person has trouble getting there, um, there may be reasons for that that need to be teased out. Uh, so and you know the other thing we need to keep in mind too. That really hasn't been touched upon particularly, but an, a, an area of tremendous strength and passion for me is in the is in the arena of immunologic, you know, research and, and autoimmunity. I'm the only member of my family that doesn't have an autoimmune condition, and I'd kind of like to keep it that way. Um, and so I've put a lot of effort into that. And food sensitivity issues can frequently dictate. You know, very often the foods we think we want the most are foods that may be. Uh, we may be sensitive to in some ways. Uh, and so I, I pay attention to what people, um, you know, to what people crave and all that kind of thing, but that doesn't necessarily tell me uh, what it is that's best for them. You know what I mean? We're, we, we're a long ways removed from the natural world in which we evolved. We've lost a lot of our instinctual sensibilities about that. Some people think, well, I, you know, I, I crave chocolate and beer, you know, and that's, you know, that's what works for me, you know, kind of a thing. Um, and I don't know that we can trust those instincts as well as we maybe once upon a time might have been able to. But um, at any rate, that is, you know, what somebody does first thing in the morning to get their day started, it's really going to depend on, on who they are. And some days I will have something for breakfast and a lot of days I won't, you know, and I'll, I'll relegate things maybe to a certain window in the afternoon or whatever else. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's, you know, the safe answer ultimately is it really depends on who you are and what your, um, maybe what your compromises are, what your symptoms are, what it is you're trying to accomplish. Are you overweight? Are you underweight? Um, do you have an autoimmune condition? Um, you know, have you, you know, what kind of lab testing have you done to determine what your triggers might be? You know, all of that stuff kind of has to factor in. I, you know, I've, I've spent more than 20 years working in, in, uh, you know, in, in, in private practice, working with the brain and doing nutritional consultations for an extremely wide range of, of, uh, you know, you know, physical and mental, emotional issues. And, um, you know, uh, I'm always trying to get people to move in a certain direction, but you have to have to start wherever, mm -hmm. wherever you are. Right. Yeah. Well, one of my well, um, mentors, one of, uh, 
his catchphrases is don't let what you can't do stop you from what you can do. So like my, you know, approach has always been, let's find out what you can do and let's get started on that. And let's not worry so much right now exactly. about right. the things that you can't. So, I agree. Yeah. Um, so I, we, um, we've talked, a, you know, a bit about what to eat, food quality. Um, well, I wanted to talk a little bit about when to eat. We've loosely touched on, on a, a few different um, roundabout ways, intermittent fasting, or more specifically, time-restricted eating. So, Jade, I know you have um, both personal um, experiences with that and do a lot of work with that. So you want to talk a little bit about the role time-restricted eating and other intermittent fasting behaviors may have in longevity? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's, I think there's no, um, no question that when you look sort of at the, the research, and again, remember, research is a tool for averages, not necessarily individuals, but when you look at that pretty clearly, uh, long periods of time without food are a wonderful thing to do for our physiology and our metabolism. And so from my perspective, when people hear that, they essentially go, okay, that means I have to mix, miss meals. And we run into, as Nora rightly points out, we run into modern day sort of constructs. The, the three square meals a day is a modern day construct. It's not something that we humans evolved with, right? So we can benefit from long periods of time without food. So the way I sort of break this down is I do think and this is one place where, you know, we can kind of pin me down and you may or may not, you know, agree with this. But I do think we humans require time with food and time without food. And so I would say we should at least be shooting for 12 hours without food. And then at that point and, you know, and this this to me is an important piece. You have you all the all the things that we need to do to repair autophagy, as Nora mentioned. We won't get into the biochemistry of it, but I do think you need that equal time. Then at that point in time, this comes to sort of what Doug was mentioning about tapping into your physiology and understanding about hunger, energy, and cravings, which again is something that we must learn. And so at that point, you eat when you're hungry, but not so hungry you're going to gnaw your arm off, right? So you give yourself this time, and then you check in to essentially say, how hungry am I? And that could mean that you're eating your first meal at 8 a.m., your first meal at 10 a.m., maybe your first meal at 12 p.m., or maybe you're like Nora and you can go the whole day, and that's when your body says, hey, I'm ready to eat. And you can see that some of us get very intuitive about this. I sometimes eat three meals a day. Sometimes I eat six little meals a day. Sometimes I go the whole day without eating. Not because I know what works for you all who are listening, but because I am practiced at this over 30 years and also working with clients. So my rule of thumb is give yourself time without food, at least 12 hours. That's number one. Number two, eat when you are you know, um, not ravenous but hungry. Stop eating when you are not completely stuffed but full and satisfied enough. And whether that means six meals, three meals, one meal is sort of unimportant um, to me. Great. Great. Nora, I, I just want to let the audience know there was a lot of shaking head agreement while Jade yeah, was speaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I, I, I think that there are certainly benefits to extending the, uh, the window, you know, in which we don't eat. Uh, or, you know, or relegating the window, uh, which we do eat, to a, to a certain number of hours per day. You know, and giving our body some rest in between time, I think that there that there are good benefits to that. Fantastic. And I don't have a problem with that at all. Yeah. Great. So uh, another thing I wanted to get thoughts on was um, shifting a little bit of what we do seasonally, and um, I know it's something that I 
typically do. I'm a farmer's market kind of guy, so I tend to eat what's mostly um, in season in terms of fruits, um, vegetables as well. But just wanted to get your thoughts and your experience working with patients both, um, you know, whether you think that's valuable and how you coach people to do that. So this time I'll start with you, Nora. Uh, I, I am very much uh, a proponent of trying to do most everything local to the extent that we can, you know, um, and seasonal, I mean, there, there are potentially, you know, uh, some benefits to that. The problem is that, uh, you know, with seasonality, obviously, you know, the foods that are available in certain seasons, that's great. You know, avail yourself of those. I'm a, I'm a big proponent of, of supporting local farmers markets, developing developing a firsthand knowing of where your food actually comes from, establishing a relationship either, you know, with uh, the local ranchers or whatever that are raising, you know, your animals for food and getting to know them and, and seeing what they do and all of that. Um, and also getting to know the local farmers that are growing whatever the vegetables and things like that, or just growing your own for that matter. I'm all for taking, uh, you know, doing the what we can to remove the middleman of the grocery store. I think increasingly that's becoming important and learning to develop that firsthand knowing of where our food comes from. And that that puts a lot of weight on local. The fact of the matter is, though, that... Um, you know, for us, even though we may witness a change of seasons in our environment, we live in these artificial climate-controlled environments now as a modern-day human species that is not necessarily natural for us. But I don't really care if you're living in Minnesota in February when it's 40 below zero. Winter ain't coming for you anymore, you know. So where our prehistoric ancestors, for instance, may have um, gotten a benefit from uh, activating, you know, fructokinase by eating a lot, a lot of ripe fruit in the fall to put on some body fat and develop a certain amount of insulin resistance to be able to get through the leaner months ahead. That's less of an advantage to our species today. So, again, I'm I'm a fan of taking a look at the the, the unique constraints of the world that we live in now. Um, uh, animal source foods are kind of a year-round thing that are always available, you know. So, for the most part, so. To me, that's not something that I do seasonally. But like you, I uh, I really do enjoy uh, farmers markets, and I love to support local farmers and ranchers working hard to do the right thing in the right way for the right reasons. That's who I want to give my food dollars to, and the extent to which I can, you know, raise or grow or hunt or fish or whatever my own is the extent to which um, you know I think that can only be beneficial. Great, thank you. And um, Jade, your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think, again, like, I think me and Nora probably agree here in a sense. I don't think that for most individuals that um, it's a good idea. To, it's a, it's kind of an advanced technique, right? For most most individuals in the average West, it's really enough just to kind of get them getting down to the basics. What satisfies them so they don't under, overeat? What is nutrient-dense? Once you get to that point, then I think if you're very advanced and you want, as an add-on, you certainly can eat seasonally, but I take a, a slightly different approach to this. And I'm just, from my perspective, I say, what would we humans, what's going to benefit us keeping that metabolic flexibility in a resilient, responsive metabolism that can at times handle no carb and at times can handle no fat. So we burn it off our bodies. And the seasons, uh, 
sort of train our metabolism to do that. So there is some uh, useful experiments in our brain that we can kind of go through to essentially say what and how should we be eating. For for a, a, a real quick example, so I don't take too much time, but think about summertime. It's a time of abundance. It's also a time where you can move a lot. So eating more and exercising more, very much like our modern day athlete that has a very, those two inputs, food in, exercise in, create a metabolic outcome. As we get into fall, right, we start getting into that maybe four week period around Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year, where we're oftentimes eating more and exercising a little less. Not a problem if it's done for a very short period of time and perhaps beneficial for our metabolism to experience that on occasion. But then it needs to be followed up with maybe an eat less, exercise less time period, a metabolic winter, so to speak. So our metabolism can get used to that particular state. And of course, in the spring, it's usually a time of eat less, exercise more. And as long as we're not doing that for too long, we're not going to run into some of the metabolic compensations that we get. For most individuals, it's, I would say for 98% of people, it's a non-concern. It's not really something they should be bothering themselves with versus just doing some of the other things we've all talked about, in my opinion. Great. Well, I just got to say, I'm you know thrilled to have hosted this time with all three of you. And thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. Yes. Thanks so much. Thank nice you. to meet you both, it's Doug, been Nora. Really great meeting you. Thank guys. you. Thank really you. Great guys. Yeah. Thanks for hosting us. Yeah, sure. yeah. Thank you. Thank you for being with us for this conversation. If you didn't know already, one of the other things we do in the collective is create supplements for better cognition, better aging, and more energy. If you're looking for any or all of that, go to neurohacker.com to learn more. And as our gift to you, we're offering an additional 15% off your first order using the code PODCAST71. If you have questions about this content, please leave them on our site at neurohacker.com slash podcast, and we'll work to get those answered on a future episode. Make sure to leave us a five-star review and subscribe to our podcast. We'll see you next time.